It still haunts me to this day. Right at the beginning of junior high school or middle school, as you might know it, uh, a good friend of mine and I, and we were in the lowest grade, we were 13 years old, and we were at a football game to start the school year, and a, uh, we had just loaded up on nachos and Cokes and things like that in the concession stand, and uh, around the corner walked some older upperclassmen who were really cool. And they walk up and they start talking to my friend, uh, really more him than I, he knew them. And I am just trying to stand there and, and look cool, trying not to make an, a fool of myself. I'm thinking, oh, wow, these are cool guys who I would like to be friends with, I'd like to be associated with. Uh, let's not make a fool of yourself, Stephen. Guess what I did? I made a fool of myself. Uh, these guys had everything that I looked up to. They had the newest, nicest shoes, the newest, nicest clothes. Some of them could grow facial hair. All things that I still wish I could do at 37 years old. But I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there holding my nachos, holding my bottle of Coke, and it still is a mystery to me to this day. But somehow that big, full bottle of Coke slips out of my hand. And I tell you, it was an unbelievable amount of time in my head as I watched it fall slowly to the ground and hit and just start spraying everywhere. It got me, it got these guys, it got everybody. As the school year went on, needless to say, I was not a part of the cool crowd. I would see these guys from time to time walking down the hallway at school, and they would give me a little smile halfway, a wave like, yeah, we know you. Why don't we stay over here? Needless to say, first impressions go a long way, for better or for worse. In our text today, in Luke chapter 2, we get a first impression of another young man but this one did not spill his coke. He was close in age to that Stephen that I just told you about, but in him we do not see embarrassment and shame. We actually see exactly who he is and why this is of absolute importance for you and for me. What this text shows us is that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior we need. Let me repeat that. But I believe the overall arching message of this text is, is that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior we need. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior we need. First, let's see in verses 41 to 49 how he is the Son of God. This story is fascinating for a number of reasons. But right at the outset, the thing that jumps out is how previously in Luke 1 and then Luke 2 verses 1 to 40, we have all of these accounts from either right before Jesus was born or when Jesus was born or just a couple of weeks after Jesus was born. This takes us all the way up to verse 40. But now verse 41 begins with Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And then if you were to look ahead to the beginning of Luke 3, which will start on January 8th, you will find Jesus is 18 years older approximately, around 30 years old. And so of the four Gospels, this story about Jesus at the temple is the only story in any of the four Gospels about Jesus' childhood. Therefore, it must stand to reason that there is something of significance behind this story. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, the text tells us that after celebrating Passover, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they likely, at this point, Mary and Joseph had been married for probably 11, 12 years, and so they probably had a few, we know they had other children, they probably had other children at this point, so it would be not uncommon for uh, travelers, uh, pilgrims, who would be going from the, the Jewish countryside, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, this great seminal holiday on the Jewish calendar. And so they would go there and they would travel in large groups from their cities and uh, likely parents would be uh, leading the way in front and behind and kids would be playing with one another and going uh, this way and that way. And, And it would not be uncommon for Mary and Joseph, their attention to be on their younger children, and as the, as the journey reaches the end of its day, or at the end of how far they're going to go that day, they start to look around and they say, well, where, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? They cannot find Jesus in the traveling party, so they do what any parent does, and they turn back to go to Jerusalem where they last saw him. And look at verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Do you see, after three days, they found him. Imagine Mary and Joseph feverishly looking for their 12-year-old for three days. I can't imagine what would be going through their minds. We have lost the Son of God. And yet they find him sitting amongst the teachers and the foremost experts in Israel on the Old Testament law. These would be the, 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 the Ivy League PhDs, those who are at the top of the, uh, of the Jewish uh, uh, religious hierarchy. And that Jesus is having this exchange, this, this conversation with them, and he's uh, 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 blowing their minds with all that he shares. Now I want you to note that that, that is fascinating. But up, up to this point, this story is is kind of just laying a normal setting of the scene. Passover, the temple, the conversation. These events up to this point are actually more like Home Alone 
than something that we should really grab hold of. Yet the waters, though the waters of the story have been quite calm up to this point, there is about to be a tsunami that turns minds and worlds upside down. And it is going to be in the very first recorded words of Jesus that we have from his whole life, any of the Gospels. And they're in his response to his mother as she asks him what he is doing. Just look at this in verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And listen to these words of Jesus in verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There is dynamite to this response. Not the kind of dynamite of a disrespectful spouting off 12-year-old, but the kind of thing that shakes the foundations of the world and by God's grace grips our hearts as well. Remember the question that we asked just a few moments ago. Why is this story included in Luke's Gospel account? Writing paper and ink and all the things that would be needed to record stories, it was at a premium in the biblical days. You didn't just record things just to throw in filler. No, there's a reason why it is here. But I want you to think about this. Up to this point in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 1 and Luke 2, we've heard from a variety of figures about this coming Christ. Think about all the figures we have heard from. We've heard from the angel Gabriel. We've heard from Zechariah. We've heard from Elizabeth. We've heard from Mary. We've heard from angels that appeared to shepherds when Jesus was born. We've heard from the shepherds who went to go visit the baby. We've heard from... Simeon and Anna, as you heard last week in uh, in chapter 2. And what are they all doing? They're all, from their own perspective, rejoicing in the Christ who would be born. And they're all testifying of the glories of this one who would come. And now, here in Luke 2.49, we no longer hear from anyone who is looking upon the Christ. But we hear from Him. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Understand this, with this pronouncement, with these first words of Jesus recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus is claiming that he is God in the flesh. He is not speaking in vain vain, vague terms like you might hear in our day and age where we are all God's children. No, he is speaking of a category and relationship between himself and the God of Israel that was entirely unknown and absolutely foreign to his audience. And to this point, it is entirely unexperienced between humans and God. To help us understand the magnitude of this pronouncement by the boy Jesus, Let me quote to you from what New Testament scholar David Gooding writes. He writes, the learned doctors, those that Jesus is speaking to in the temple, they knew the Old Testament inside and out. In all the long biblical record, not even Moses who had built the tabernacle, not David who had longed to build the temple, nor Solomon who had actually built it, no prophet, no king or commoner, not the most exalted of them, had ever referred to the tabernacle or the temple as my father's house. The child was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of, let alone expressed before. 
And with that relationship, he had a compelling devotion. I had to be in my father's house. It's as if we get this story in verses 48 and 49 serve to reorient our entire perspectives toward Jesus. Verse 48, Mary hurried in. You can, you can imagine her rushing in and seeing her son and, and, and kind of hurrying up to him and halfway hugging him, but halfway kind of grabbing him by the shoulders. Why have you put your father and I in such distress? Jesus said, I had to be about my father's business. Lest we give Mary a hard time. It's likely after 12 years, her and Joseph, life had a way of moving at a speed that they were just trying and trying to keep up. School, doctor's appointments, work, handling their finances. The busyness of their day and age all with an eye towards just making it to the next day. Unless we give Mary too hard of a time, like, Mary, don't you remember what everyone said when your baby was born? Before we jump over and give her too hard of a time, perhaps we ask ourselves how quickly, how easily, do we forget that Jesus is the Son of God? Not in a manner where we would deny it, but in a manner where our hearts would fail to recognize it. Our worship would not reveal it. Our trust in Him, in fact, would be the thing that denies it. But it's like we have two different stories unfolding here. We have the Mary story and the Jesus story. And Mary's saying, okay, your father and I have been looking for you. And then Jesus comes in in his response and he lifts it up in order that we can see the greater story that is at play. This summer I got to go see uh, the, the new Top Gun movie at the, at the Jordan's IMAX up in Reading. And if you've ever been to the IMAX there, it is a eight-story high movie screen with all the fanciest laser technology for video and you have these seats that uh, vibrate uh, with the speakers and uh, all of these things um, that make for a fully immersive movie experience and they show at the beginning of the IMAX as they're welcoming you there they show this uh, video that that is uh, or has the audio of from like the earliest movies that first had sound, like, I'm not going to try that, and it's like, like a little coming out of one tiny speaker, remember like from like 1930s or 40s uh, uh, technology, and then it's like, and then it went to this kind of technology, and this kind of technology, and it expands, and it gets bigger, and louder, and more immersive, until eventually it's like talking about the technology they have in the theater, and it, it's like it, it, it just full reverberation and sound, and so you've got two hours of just fighter jets taking off and just bombs exploding and all of these things happening. If we fail to see the identity of Jesus and we only look at his life in that somewhat historical sense or that somewhat ethical sense of what can I get out, what, what, what can I learn from him, but we fail to see who he is and what he's claiming to be and what that means for us, it's like we're looking at, we're sitting in the theater that has all of the most advanced digital, laser, whatever technology, but we're still trying to watch that old black and white picture 
with the sound coming out of something that produces about the same kind of volume as your cell phone might. If you are trying to figure out what you will make of Jesus, I encourage you, perhaps over the course of the holidays, to read through the Gospel of Luke in a manner where you chalk up to yourself, okay, I'm going to assume that what he says in verse 49 is true. And then read through and see everything that he does, everything that he says, everything that he reveals. And say, is this really the Son of God doing this, saying this, showing this, working this? And find that you see in Him something far greater than the little black and white video that you might be trying to watch of His life. Trying to pull whatever you can from it when the fully immersive experience awaits. Now whether you are trying to figure out Jesus or whether you are already a Christian, be a good practice Over the course of the holidays, read through the Gospel of Luke. And take what you see here and say, Lord, stamp this truth on my heart yet again. Because I can be like Mary where I fail to believe that this this Jesus is the Son of God. You see, because when I believe that He is the Son of God, then I find that I can rest in His mercy I can rest in the fact that the same one who controls the winds and the waves, the storms, the one who who can bring the dead to life, the one who controls all things by his power. I can rest in the fact that this one has come for me. A good prayer this Christmas season for each of us would be to prepare, even as we enter a new year, would be to ask God to help us to trust his word. Because if he's the Son of God, then that really puts so much everything of what he says not up for debate or speculation as to what we will make of it. But the responsibility of us under the Son of God is to submit ourselves under his authority. And that's where we sometimes slip out from believing that he is the Son of God. Not because we don't want to believe it, but because we don't want to accept, we don't want to acknowledge what that means for us in following Him. If we're not careful, we can profess the divinity of Jesus, but in our hearts we might be plugging our ears to this fact because we don't want to walk the road that the Son of God calls us to walk in obedience to Him. So remember, I'm arguing that this text puts before us that Jesus is the Son of God And now we'll move on to seeing that not only is the Son of God, but He is the Savior that we need. So you have identity and purpose. Identity, Son of God, purpose, Savior we need. And these go together like this. You can't have Savior apart from the Son of God. But if He's Son of God and cannot bridge that gap to bring us to God, then it is as if we see across a great chasm a wonderful promised land, but all we can do is wave and, and, and reach out our hands as if we're stranded on a desert island, but those who, are, who can be our rescue 
cannot see us or will not come help us. But no, when He is Son of God and Savior we need, He comes to us. And now we see this moving forward. So not only do we have this fascinating introduction or first impression of Jesus, but now we get the first response to Jesus and His divinity. And that comes from Mary and Joseph. Like I said, verse 49, He said to them, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know I must be in My Father's house? And then verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. Like I touched on earlier, we don't want to be too hard on Mary. She had the the emotions of a mother hurriedly looking for her son for three full days. She had life that had weighed down on her, perhaps to the point that those memories of all the things that, that, that were wonderful about his conception and about his birth were now memories in the past as she sought to raise this young boy. But as they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them, we see in verse 51 something that is quite fascinating. And He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, this is interesting. He went down with them. It doesn't say that that, that He said, okay, mom and dad, I'm going to be a few more minutes in the temple. Go wait out there. Those who have faith are the only ones who are welcome in here. He didn't, you, you, parents, do you know that feeling whenever you, you, you make a mistake and your kid catches it, your kid knows it? And you just feel like your kid's just looking at you like, mm, who do you think you are? You know? Come on, I know I have those. Jesus didn't give Mary that. He didn't stand there and like look at all the Israelite PhDs around him and say, there she is, boys. My mom, yeah, she, I've been telling you, right? She's a tough one. No, he doesn't do that. No, it tells us that he went down with them. He came to Nazareth. And then this is no mistake that is in here. And he was submissive to them. Here's what's happening. Lest we walk past verse 51 and think that Okay, it's just kind of the end of the story. It's just kind of the, the, the culmination of these events. It actually serves as a part of the entire chain of Jesus' work. And just like a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, if we have a fracture here, it's disastrous to the whole thing. Here's what I mean. One thing about Jesus being the Son of God and the Savior that we need is we need His perfect righteousness. His total, absolute sinlessness. In this moment, Jesus does not sinfully spout off at His mother like 99 out of 112-year-olds would do. In this moment, He does not shame or embarrass His mother for her apparent lack of faith. No, this is actually something that if we were traversing, trying to climb our way to the top of Mount Everest, and we think of the journey that awaits us thousands of thousands of feet up but we're so worried about that that we could lose our step on a small ridge on our way to base camp and we could still wipe out jesus makes sure that he does not miss any steps in his perfect righteousness as a sinless son of god 
In fact, if, if, if you wonder if Jesus really could be sinless, 30 plus years of life, not telling a lie, not thinking an improper or impure thought about others, not lashing out in anger at others, not doing anything that would be sinful before God the Father, if you think, wow, I don't know that he could do that, this might be the greatest example to you because you know this is not 12-year-old behavior. Here's what we have to grasp. Is the obedience of the boy in the temple prepares us for the obedience of the man, the Savior, who would one day ultimately give his life on behalf of his people. And all of these claims about Jesus, all the way from his miraculous virgin birth, to his sinless life, to his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All of these claims about him, the way they all work is if you pull one out, the rest of them collapse. You can't say, well, I, I think Jesus was a liar. But yeah, I think he died for my sins. And so what we have here is we are almost as if Luke is taking us around and Jesus is walking around this massive structure of the identity of the, of the Son of God, the Savior we need, and He's taking us very carefully in these early pages of Luke around the foundation to make sure that all of it is solid and that there are no cracks, there are no leaks, there's no, nothing structurally unsound about this one that we are seeing. But here's what else is happening as we consider Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior we need. Luke doesn't just take us around the foundation of Jesus' identity and say, check it out, you will not find any blemishes. But he takes us then and turns the mirror on us and says, now let's check out the foundation of your heart. It doesn't let us bounce back and forth about what do I think about Jesus' position on this particular ethical issue? Or how would Jesus inform my politics? This passage actually grabs us by the hand and takes us to the bottom floor of our own hearts to look at the foundation and the pillars that uphold the whole structure of, of our hearts and forces us to come to grips with whether or not we believe that He is who he claims to be. And if we do believe this, then it forces us to start to build on that foundation. To start to orient our lives around him and his word, not as if the things that he has said are suggestions but as if they are paramount in importance. 
we would all be well served to take a page from Mary. As she listened to these, she treasured up all of these things in her heart. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Think on them, ponder them, reflect. Carefully consider. Because where this story is taking us, as we consider the perfect obedience of Jesus, you remember the Passover, the seminal holiday on the Jewish calendar. Where the people of Israel did what? They remembered God passing over them in judgment. Remember they would sacrifice a lamb and the blood of the lamb would be spread on the doorposts of the home and the angel of death would pass over their home in order that they might be redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt. We have the Son of God here. The one who would one day become the Lamb of God. One day become the final Passover Lamb. Who His perfect obedience would take Him far beyond not spouting off to His mother in the temple for her lack of faith. We have this boy in the temple who one day would say, I must be about my father's business. But that not mean talking with these religious leaders about the law. But humbling himself under these who would sentence him to death. We have this boy who, as verse 52 tells us, it reminds us again, uh, uh, we've seen this already in Luke's Gospel, just back in verse 40, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke is saying he's growing up. He's growing up. The boy who submitted himself to his mother will one day, through sweating droplets of blood, submit himself to His Father. The family that would journey to Jerusalem to commemorate and to remember the Passover would one day journey to Jerusalem and they would look upon the cross and they would see a Passover lamb that was the son, the brother, the beloved child that they knew. You and I need the Savior. You and I can only have the Savior. And His power is only of any importance to us if He is the Son of God. Do you see how Luke connects these together? And he prepares us for all that awaits that he's going to show us about Jesus. 
But right at the outset, he gives us the first impression of who Jesus is. Because he wants us to turn around and to consider what do I make of Jesus? Am I trying to look at him in a way more like Mary? Where I have my expectations for him. Where I have the parts of my life, whether it's my finances, whether it's my relationships, whether it's my hobbies, my personality. That I say, okay, God, you can have these things, but you can't have this. Because he would tell us who would follow after him, our Savior. He would say, I am your example. I'm not just the one who died for you. But I'm the one who walked in submissive obedience to my mother. And I call you to walk in submissive obedience to me. There's a word here for us about humbling ourselves under our Lord. Do you recognize that He is the Son of God? And do you embrace Him as the Savior you need? The good thing about Christ who has come is this is his first impression. And it's his consistent impression. And he has come that those of us who have not made the best first impressions with one another or with God that we might come to him And by faith, we can know. Dear Christian, take this to heart. You can know that as you pray and you take your needs before your Father, as you yearn for Him to give you the grace, the ability to trust Him, you can know that your Father in heaven does not look upon you And see that shame that you carry from the embarrassment. That shame that you carry from the sin. He sees his son in you. His son who is the son of God. And who is the savior we need. Lest we try to make our way to him apart from the Son of God. Because if we try to do so, we will be like Stephen, trying to make that great first impression, but just making a fool of ourselves. 
Yet if we will take refuge under Christ, we can know the Savior we need, the Son of God who has come to us. Let us trust in Him by faith. Would you pray with me? Lord God, it is sobering to consider that this Jesus whom we have just looked at from Luke 2 is now the one through whom we pray and we bring ourselves before you. And yet we know that through him, our Savior, he who is the Son of God, we have been made sons and daughters of yours. Brothers and sisters of Christ, our brother. Lord, I pray for any in our church family who are dismayed, disoriented, brokenhearted. May they know the Son of God and the comfort found in the grace of Christ. May they take refuge in Him this day. May they take refuge in His perfect righteousness. May they take refuge in His finished work. May they take refuge that their soul has been knit to yours by redeeming grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect well on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior we need. We pray this in his name. Amen.